you know, it seemed like we just started our series on, you know, who is my neighbor, kind of roughly, loosely based on Mr. Rogers. And we had the whole summer ahead of us to do that. Well, today is our last day in this series. And it's just, to me, it's just amazing that we are at that place because it seemed like we had weeks and weeks and weeks ahead of us. And so our scripture this morning is the last in that series. It's from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 7 through 24. Um, hear these words this morning. When he noticed how the guests chose places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor. In case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host, and the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said also to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or sisters or your relatives or your rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. One of the dinner guests, on hearing this, said to him, Blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus said to him, Someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for the dinner, he sent out his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have just been married, and therefore I cannot come. So the slave returned and reported to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, Sir, what you have ordered has been done, and there is still room. Then the master said to the slave, Go into the roads and lanes and compel people to come so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. May God grant us understanding of this somewhat confusing uh, story. So many of you would agree with me that most of the major events in our families are centered around food. 
food and maybe food and or hospitality. I've been to big fancy dinners, you know, the, the $100 a plate plus dinners that, you know, have a tiny bit of food on them. And I've been to the most humble meals where, you know, someone has just added a little bit more water to the soup or put in another potato in the pot and given me or invited me to come sit with them and eat with them in whatever their humble things are. I've made a meal out of a couple of protein bars when there was no other way to do it. You know, there's always those kind of extremes that happen. But one of the things that, that we could all kind of agree to is your answer to this question. That is, how helpful is it to know how many people are coming? to a dinner that you're preparing. And we have to set the table, we have to have enough food, we have to do all those things. So some predictability is pretty important for, for a, a dinner party or brunch or anything like that. You need to have enough food to go around and you don't wanna have buckets left over that you have to figure out how to fit them in your already stuffed fridge. Those, that's just part of of kind of how we do a hospitality today. Um, some of the people here in at Portsmouth know this story. And that is when David and I were married, my husband and I were married, we got married in a, a chapel in Montana. And we were expecting a really small service with just some friends and some family. It was a it was a chapel that would seat about 185. It wasn't huge. It was kind of way up on a mountain that overlooked a mountain lake, and it was just just intimate. That's how we wanted it. So 185 people. And so um, I graduated from college on June 5th, and we were married on June 16th, so I really wasn't paying attention to some of the details. My family was handling those, and they were really happy to do it. And so... So it wasn't until the morning of our wedding, I found out my mom had, had printed the invitation in the local paper. Not announcement, invitation. Yes. So I come out of the back room, you know, in my wedding dress and everything, and I realize that there is standing room only in this chapel. And my first thought is, oh, I wonder if we have enough food. Because this was supposed to be a luncheon reception and, and the, the room that we were gonna do was a small one, but fortunately it was a nice day and we could go out into the, into the outside and people could stand around and eat their, their things. And, and so, um, you know, my family is always one that overcooks everything. So my aunts and my grandmothers made all this food and they had more than enough for you know, I, to this day, don't know how many actually came to our wedding. If it seated 185 and there were people standing around the, the edges and in the back of the chapel, 225, 250, I, you know, I really don't know. And um, I, I remember that feeling of, uh, you know, do we have the right amount of food? So that was kind of my experience of that. And it was very memorable. 
And my family still talks about that. And, you know, I'm not quite sure what my mom was thinking. But we all have kind of those memories. Do you have memories of like, say Thanksgiving dinner where you were expecting, you know, a dozen people and twice that show up? That was kind of my mom's house all the time. And so that's why, I mean, she got used to doing extra food. You know, that, that but also there's those times when you expect a great crowd and fewer come. And you have all these leftovers. And then you wonder, what do you do with those leftovers? One of the things I love about this congregation is we have the free fridge out front. And so if I end up with too much soup or too much something, I can bring it over here and someone will, will eat it. And there's some, some really good things about that. So our scripture today talks about a banquet in kind of a couple of ways. You know, there's, there's the first instance when they're, they have one conversation and then there's one parable and then there's the second parable. In the Gospel of Matthew, that second parable isn't just a banquet, it's a wedding feast. It's, it's named a wedding feast, kind of the same story. Um, and, you know, when you look through that, the scripture today, it's kind of like, don't do this, do this instead. It's kind of that, you know... Um, don't sit, don't go in and sit in the first seat, sit in the back, the last seats, because all those things will happen. And it seems like it's, it's kind of etiquette advice that's there. But, um, but I'm thinking that Luke is talking about something deeper than that. I don't think the scripture is specifically about what to do if you invite people over or if you are invited over. I don't think it's as simple as that. There's some things in the background playing into this. Um, so we begin kind of looking first at the setting. Um, we learn that um, this is given in um, connection with a, a Sabbath meal and at the home of one of the Pharisees. Now, what do you know about Pharisees? You know, what, think about that for a minute. Who were the Pharisees and what they, they were the keepers of the law. They were kind of the elite of the society. And for them, status meant everything. You know, so when Jesus is talking in this context, I think he's talking to them. You know, when you have this thing, don't go to the front of the line. Go to the end of the line. You know, Jesus is doing this all the time when he's talking about the first shall be last and the last should be first. He's kind of taking the norms and turning them upside down, and this is one of those cases. Um, the fact that these Pharisees or these people are watching him closely um, gives me to think that they're waiting for something to happen. And in the Gospel of Luke, there's lots of places where they're want, waiting for him to make a mistake or to say something wrong or to step on their laws. You know, that's, they're waiting for that to happen. Um, so I wonder when we look at this, this idea in this, this first part, when we're looking at, you know, what you would think about this instruction, when you go somewhere for a meal, 
Don't take the place of honor, but take, take the, low, the lowly place instead so that you can be moved up instead of moved down. And does that make any sense to you at all in our context, in our world? It's a little bit hard to wrap our minds around, but if we look at the, the history and the context of what was happening in that society, this society was really about honor and shame and blame. So when, when a Pharisee would have, wouldn't have thought even a little bit, not even a little, little bit, about taking a low place. They wouldn't have done that because that was not their place. Instead, they would take the place of honor. And so Jesus is kind of taking this society where there are haves and have-nots and kind of turning them upside down. Who is, who is the honorable one here? Who is the one that, that we need to be looking toward? Are we looking toward the person that um, regularly goes to the, the hundred-dollar-a-plate meals? Are we looking at the one that might not have a plate? And who are the who are the, who's the important ones here? And and Jesus is continually pushing and pushing and pushing against that idea that status is being on top, status is being best. Status is having the most. I think Jesus would be really uncomfortable in our consumeristic society today. You know, um, I was just in Montana. My mom, 94 years old, was um, just uh, diagnosed with a, a form of cancer that's a tumor. And at 94, there isn't... Um, if they do nothing, it means death. If they do something, there's risk. And so I, I was going on vacation, rest and relaxation, right? And so I went to Montana um, instead of the place of that and, and went to doctor's appointments and stuff. And on the way back, on the way back, my van broke down. And I mean, really broke down. Like I had to have it towed back from the Tri-Cities. And so yesterday, I had to go to an auto dealership and buy a new van. What an experience that is. Because, um, you know, I'm very grateful we didn't have a high-pressure salesperson. We had a very young Muslim girl who was our salesperson. And, um, and we had a it took all day. But we had this lovely day with Noel, spelled with a W, N-O-W-E-L. And, um, and she wanted to know how we were the way we are, how we could be patient with this thing that took all day. And we ended up having these conversations with her. Now, around us, there were some of the high-pressured people. But a friend of mine had prayed that we would have the the right person for our salesperson. And we ended up buying a van that's probably more van than I've ever had in my life with more bells and whistles than I've ever had. But what I came around with, it wasn't pride in that van, but 
such love for this young woman who was really struggling because her mom left the family. And she prayed yesterday morning that someone would come into her life who would understand her situation. Now, I would guess some of the delay all day had to do with her inexperience. But I would not trade that for the And it's interesting to me that I was writing this sermon the last few days and then had this experience. She asked me if she could have my phone number when I left. So I hope that someday I'll have another conversation with Noelle. We didn't have the best salesperson in the place. Suppose we could have requested it. But I am so glad we didn't. Jesus sees people differently than humans see each other. Jesus sees value where we don't necessarily, as humans, see value. Now, I would guess that he's really talking to the Jewish community in this context. And for them, having the best of everything, especially those Pharisees and Sadducees and the other leaders of the, of the synagogue, would have, would have wanted the very best. And he's having this conversation with them and telling them, first, you know, don't take that high place, take the low place. And then he tells this other story about someone giving a banquet and um, they invite all their friends and neighbors, all the people that are around them. They invite all those people. And when it comes time, the people that he's invited have these excuses. You know, um, I bought this field and I have to go look at it. Do you really think that they bought that field that morning? You know, I bought five oxen and I need to go take care of them. Do you think that happened that time? You know, and, and so on and so forth, that, that there's these excuses. And I think sometimes, um, sometimes we as humans make excuses when we're invited to places or things. Or if Jesus is the one that's inviting us to do something, you know, Go do that thing, uh, Sherry, because I'm calling you to do that and then I don't want to. And so I might come up with an excuse. And so we as humans have this kind of excuse thing stuck in our head. You know, it might be back from our days of being in school and having excuses for not getting our homework in. You know, the famous, the dog ate my homework. Kind of hard to do when it's your computer that the homework is on. But, you know, I'm sure that someone has tried it sometime. So, you know, that, that we have this propensity, this, this thing in us that makes us want to make excuses. And we do it regularly. And Jesus is saying, you know, don't worry about that as much as go invite those who need, who have need. So, you know, the landowner talks about him being angry. And, I, you know, I could see that. A little bit, but I also see, then he went out and he invited 
all of these people that were the least of these. All of these people that, that those Pharisees wouldn't have had anything to do with. He's telling them, go invite them and bring them in. And then it's the, the room is not full yet, so they go out and get some more. So as we're kind of looking at this story, we have the first becoming last, and the last becoming first, and then we have go out and invite the least of these. And then we begin to take that kind of, that tapestry that we've created with that story, and we put it in the here and now. You know, as we begin to, to wrap up the who is my neighbor, um, theme that we've done this summer. Now, I'd really hope that our neighbors would be moved in when we finished. I did. I think that anything that, you know, we do from here on out is influenced by two things. Remember way back June, we talked about the two greatest commandments. The one being, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and soul. And then the second is love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love neighbor. If I could sum up this summer, those would be the two things that I will have walked away with. And I hope you did too. Love God. Love neighbor. And love self. You see, you can't take that love neighbor piece if you're not willing to do the love self piece. And I know, I know, I know that loving self and having good boundaries and all those things that we need to do, I know that that's not easy. I know. But I think that if we love God with all that we are, that God will help us do the other parts. I am really grateful that we never have to do it on our own. You know, when I let people know what was happening with me, I had something like 106 texts that came into my phone saying, I'm praying for you. We don't have to do this alone. However, we need to let people know what's going on with us. We can't say all is peachy all the time. I wish it were. But we all still, some way or other, maybe it's health, maybe it's something else. I know, you know, my, my mom is kind of my hero. She's 94 and still rules the universe. She really does. And she said to me, she said, you know, Sherry, if I, if I have this surgery and I meet Jesus that day, I'm all good. I'm 94, but you'll have to take care of your dad. And she said, and then if I have the surgery and everything's okay, I get to keep doing what I'm doing. Now you have to understand something that makes this a remarkable thing for my mom to say, my mom is almost blind. She has lost her sight. And she is so in love with Jesus that she can say, you know, you guys are worried, but I'm not worried. 
I think that often we forget who we are and whose we are. And the worries pile on. And we forget that we have each other. We forget that. You know, we could talk all day about the first becoming last and the last becoming first and who to invite and who to help. We could talk about that all day. But I think if we figure out those things, the commandments, summed up in love God, love neighbor, love self, that there is no stopping us. I really believe that the way this world sees people can be changed. I don't think we all have to agree. It would be so boring if we did. And I think that when we feel compelled to make excuses, when we feel that call, to help others or do whatever. When we feel like we need to make excuses, it's kind of a red flag to me that why am I feeling this way? I remember walking past a person begging on the street and I don't, I'll, I'll be real honest, I don't often share my monies with them. I would rather buy food and put it in our food pantry here. I would rather give directly to someone who has need rather than that, but one day, I walked past someone and, and I got probably a dozen steps past them. And I stopped. I'm like, no God, uh-oh, no, this is not something I do. I take a couple more steps and I stopped. Eventually I went back and I talked with this person and I learned their story and I did eventually help them. But I had this argument with God about who, about helping this person that I'm not inclined to help. Now, do I do that with every person that I see begging at the street corner? Absolutely not. But if I feel drawn, I might do that. Because see, what I realized is that I live in a world of abundance. I do. And there are a lot of people that live in a world of scarcity, where there's not enough food, there's not enough anything. I mean, I had the credit that I could go buy a van. Yeah, I'll make payments. But I could do it. There was a time in our life when we didn't have that ability when David would have had to figure out how to fix that transmission. He's a mechanic. He's, he's also a pastor, an interim pastor like me, but he drove school bus for like 20 years and he's kind of a garage mechanic. And so he, he can fix most things, but he would, have, he would have went to a junkyard, got a new transmission and put on there. So I know that I live in a place of privilege, a place of abundance. And I think that this whole story is to remind us 
that there are people out there that need us. They need food. I'm looking at the pantry back there. They need housing. I'm thinking about the apartments over here. And that need a kind word. Like Noel yesterday needed someone who cared. And who didn't care that she was Muslim. So when she talks about struggling with her relationship with God, we're not like, why would you do that? But I get it. I get it. There are people out there that need us so much. So to answer our final question of this series, who then is my neighbor? How would we answer? It's okay to talk out loud. Who is our neighbor, folks? Everyone is my neighbor, and everyone matters. God, grant us peace. God, grant us courage. God, grant us the ability to see people as you see them to kind of put away that, that idea of status, to put away that idea of someone being better than someone else. To see the eyes of your people the way you see your people. God, we want to change our world. And we know that you are the way. And we acknowledge that you are one way, not the only way. Amen.